Hello, church family. Now, after a brief hiatus, we're going to jump back into our study through the book of Genesis. And like Pastor Allen stated a couple weeks ago, this next series will be entitled Journeys with Jacob. Now, during this time, we're going to journey with Jacob through events when he wrestled with God, reunites with his brother Esau, and when he returns to Bethel. But today, we're going to visit Genesis 30 and 31 to discuss the covenant or the treaty between Jacob and his uncle Laban. So our scripture reading comes from Genesis 31, verses 44 through 46, and it reads, Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took the stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now, after reading through Genesis 31, it appears as though this covenant is a great way to end a tumultuous relationship. But I beg to differ. See, this agreement was the result of a missed opportunity by someone who knew God and who knew God's promises, but refused to respond to God in a way that was pleasing to God, which is why I entitled this week's sermon, Doing God's Will, God's Way. Let us bow our heads and pray. Well, Heavenly Father, it is such an honor and a privilege to be able to share your word today. Heavenly Father, I ask that you forgive me for any sin that I may have committed, known or unknown, seen and unseen. I ask God that you touch my heart and help me to surrender to your will. And Heavenly Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit touch each and every person who's listening to the, your message. God, prepare their hearts to receive what you would have them to receive. And God, I pray that as I speak, that I am convicted of your word in a way that it will transform me into the image of our Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Heavenly Father, we pray for wisdom, we pray for healing, we pray for transformation, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we study the book of Genesis, may God be with you. Now, before we dive into uh, chapters 30 and 31, let's do a brief recap of Jacob's journey. See, Jacob was the younger twin brother of Esau. And during her pregnancy, Jacob and Esau's mother, Rebekah, was told by God that she would give birth to twins. And each of them would establish a great nation. And Esau, who is the older of the two, he would end up serving his younger brother. Now, over time, Jacob managed to purchase the, his brother's birthright and steal his blessing. Therefore, Esau vowed to kill him, and Jacob fled to Mesopotamia. Now, during his journey, Jacob stopped in a place called Luz. And at night, the Lord appeared to him and said that he was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And this is what he told Jacob. 
He said, know that I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go and bring you back to this land. He went on to say, I will never leave you until I have done what I have promised to do. This is Genesis 28, verses 15 and 16. So from God's lips to Jacob's ears, God made a promise to Jacob and made known that his will will be done through Jacob. Now, when Jacob arrived at his uncle Laban's house in Haran, he fell in love with his cousin Rachel. Seems pretty odd, doesn't it? But he worked for Laban for seven years to obtain Rachel's hand in marriage. But Laban substituted his daughter Leah for Rachel during the night of their ceremony. Now, unknowingly married to Leah, Jacob was compelled to serve Laban for another seven years so that he can take Rachel as his wife. And so this brings us to the end of Genesis 29. And up to this point in Jacob's life, we see that Jacob knew God, but he did not truly follow God. And his most prominent character trait was trickery and deceit. Now, back in Genesis 28, it seems that Jacob had started to realize that he had a decision to make. He could develop the relationship with God that his father and grandfather had, or he could keep doing things his way. Now, this decision was a struggle for Jacob, who was the deceiver, because Jacob fulfilled God's promises and God's will his own way. For example, see, in Genesis 25, Jacob was promised the birthright, but he took it upon himself to purchase it from Esau. He went about God's will his own way. And in Genesis 27, Jacob's mother persuaded him into tricking his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing instead of giving it to his brother Esau. And the crazy part is God had already promised that Jacob would have it anyway. However, Jacob decided to get the, get the blessing his way. Now this brings us to today's study of Genesis 30 and 31. And Genesis 30 describes the conflict between Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, who were fighting to bear the most children with Jacob. Now, at various points, Rachel and Leah, they couldn't have children, so they asked their servants to be surrogate mothers for them. They, in turn, had two sons, and after some time, both Rachel and Leah were capable of having children. Now, starting in verse 25 of Genesis chapter 30, the narrative begins to shift to Jacob's 14 years of service to his crooked father-in-law, Laban. And he did that in exchange for Rachel and Leah because he wanted to leave and go back to his own land. Now, since Laban had become wealthy because of God's blessing on Jacob, Laban asked Jacob to name his price in order to stay. And Jacob offered to take the rejects of the flock, which at that point weren't many. And when Laban heard that, he said to himself, this is a deal that I cannot refuse. However, it would become a deal that he would later regret. 
See, Jacob didn't make this deal because he was stupid. He had a few tricks up his sleeve and he was counting on his shrewd deal to get rich at Laban's expense. Now, in Genesis 31, Jacob and his family, they begin to make their break for freedom. And Laban soon finds out that they're gone and he mounts a posse to go after them. Now, during his search, God appears to Laban in a dream and warns him not to touch Jacob. And once Laban caught up with Jacob, Laban pretends to be sad that Jacob and his family had left without, going, without saying goodbye. However, when you read the scripture, it doesn't take a genius to see that Laban was more concerned with his idol stolen from his house than he was about his family. Now, once Laban mentioned the stolen goods, Jacob adamantly starts to, to defend his case by saying, we did not steal them. And he was so adamant about it that he said to Laban and he said to everyone else, if anyone is found who stole those idols, they will be put to death. But unbeknownst to Jacob, it was his wife, Rachel, who stole them. And she tricks her father into not searching her goods where they were hidden. So feeling this righteous indignation, Jacob finally expresses his fury towards Laban, not just because of the idol search, but because of the 20 years of shabby treatment that Laban opposed on Jacob. But when Laban hears this, he disagrees. But at the end of the argument, he proposes a covenant between the two. So at this point, we're now at the end of chapter 31, and after 20 years from the time that uh, Jacob arrived at Laban's house, Laban's house, Jacob is now being seen in a certain light by his uncle Laban. See, so far when it comes to Jacob, we witness his relationship with his twin brother, his mother, his father, his uncle, and his wives. And we even, we, we even witness Jacob's relationship with God. And one thing that we noticed after all this time of reading about Jacob is Jacob never prays. See, in Genesis chapter 28, verses 20 through 22, Jacob makes a vow with God. He didn't pray. He made a vow with God, suggesting that, God, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. Now, when we read this, there are two interpretations that one can conclude from this vow. The first is that Jacob is bargaining with God by saying, if you do this for me, then and only then will I serve you. Now, the second interpretation is that when Jacob says, if you do this for me, that that word if in the Hebrew can be defined as the word since. So now we see maybe as Jacob starting to have some confidence and some belief in God by saying, since you're going to do this for me, then and only then will I serve you. See, it's likely that both interpretations are true. See, Jacob believed in God, but there was still enough of his old self, his old ways, the trickery that got him to this point. There was still enough inside of him to try to bargain with God the way he bargained with Esau and his father Isaac. He was so accustomed to doing things his way 
and not God's way, that Jacob couldn't let his old ways go. So think about this. Laban had lived in close proximity with Jacob for 20 long years, yet he still believed Jacob stole his gods and unfairly taken his flocks. He felt compelled to get Jacob to swear a holy oath that he would not mistreat his wives or in someday come back to kill Laban and his family. He knew Jacob believed in God, but he didn't see the fruit that Jacob depended upon God. He saw Jacob as one who knew God but couldn't be trusted. What a poor and pathetic testimony that is for Jacob and his character. And it, it is all because he decided to do God's will his own way. So the question we have to ask ourselves is as I go to work, as I deal with my family, as I converse with my neighbors throughout my community, how does it get to the point that I could proclaim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but yet no one sees the fruit, and the people who know me can not trust me. Well, there are four points that we're going to make so that we can be certain that as a body of believers, everything that we do, especially as we're fulfilling to, uh, as we're attempting to fulfill our calling in Jesus Christ, that we will do it God's way. The first point is this. We must be persistent in prayer. See, the best way to learn how to be persistent in prayer is to look at the life of Jesus Christ. He came closer to fulfilling the scripture to pray without ceasing more than any person that ever walked the face of the earth. See, Jesus was constantly in prayer. And if you look at the scripture, you'll see that Jesus was known to pray alone. He prayed in, he prayed in public, before meals, before important decisions. When Jesus was doing healing, he prayed before healing, and he even prayed after the healing. He prayed for his friends and his enemies. And what Jesus did is he prayed for the Father's will. We see that in Gethsemane. Jesus prayed, he said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. See, Jesus offered a tremendous but seemingly simple insight into prayer. And that is that God is in control. And as we learn from the prayer of Jesus, and there is so much for us to learn, we need to keep that overarching principle in mind that God is in control. See, once we acknowledge our complete dependence on God, then we can accept God's sovereignty and take comfort in knowing that our destiny is in his hands. For this reason, looking to God in prayer is, a, is an essential part of doing God's will, God's way. Which brings us to point number two. We must be persistent in patience. See, Scripture shows that patience is not an option when serving our sovereign God. And after we study the life of Jacob, we're going to study the life of Joseph. 
And we'll see in Genesis 37 that Joseph had a vision of his family bowing down to him. But soon after, he was sold into slavery, slavery and later he went to prison. See, it took 14 years before God exalted him to be second in command in Egypt, where his family did eventually bow down to him. And when David was a teenager, he was anointed as the king of Israel. And it was then that he faced Goliath. He was banished by Saul. He hid in the desert. He lived on a run. He was forced out of the nation. And he fought many, many battles for David. It was nearly 15 years between the time he was anointed king and the time he actually became king. And then we get to Jesus. Jesus himself was persistent in patience. It wasn't until he was 30 years old when Jesus began his ministry. Then Jesus approaches John the Baptist, John the Baptist and he's baptized. Then he waits for another season in the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was tempted by the devil. It was then that the Holy Spirit came upon him in power, and that's when Jesus began his ministry. See, even Jesus waited on God to do God's will, God's way. Which brings us to our next point. We must also be prepared for problems. Church family, never make the mistake that doing God's will, God's way, will be issue-free. Expect the opposite. <laughs> See, in 2 Timothy verses, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, Paul warned Timothy of the difficult, and actually that word is translated terrible, times that would happen throughout the church history as he sought to accomplish God's will. Paul said that people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure instead of God, they would be abusive, unforgiving, and having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. He went on to say there will be many false teachers that would lead people astray. The crazy part about this, he was talking about people in the church. He wasn't talking about people outside of the church. He was letting Timothy know that as you go about doing God's will, God's way, there will be issues. Both people at work, at your home, and even in the church will challenge you as you attempt to serve God. See, in, in verse 10 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, chapter 3, he gave Timothy some encouraging words. He said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. He let him know that in his attempt to do God's will, God's way, we as a body of believers will face challenges. That's why my next point is this. We are prepared for problems when we are prepared to be faithful. See, just like the enemy approached Jesus, he is going to approach us. And just like Jesus was faithful to the word of God, we must in turn be faithful to the word of God. When we have God's word in our hearts, when we begin to read and study and digest God's word, when problems arise, it'll be God's word that sustains us, 
and guide, and guide us during our time of trouble. We have to dig into God's word because it's going to be that word, God himself, the living word of God, that's going to help us during our trials and tribulations. And finally, as we attempt to do God's will God's way, we must serve in humility. See, Scripture is clear that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And unfortunately, in today's society, it's not seen as a positive trait. Humility is actually seen as a weakness. And in a lot of cases, humility is seen as a flaw that should be avoided at all times. But then there's Jesus. And he is our perfect example of how to live a humble life. And he showed us and he put this on display when he left heaven to go to earth, when he became a servant, and when he died on the cross. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he never argued about his rights or his privileges. He also never requested to be understood. And in fact, he denied himself from reputation. He simply lived a life of a suffering servant. He embraced a life of rejection, of shame, and poverty so that you and I can live forever. See, doing God's will, God's way requires us to remove pride as an obstacle. And as Jesus' example demonstrates, humility is a prerequisite for God's grace. You cannot receive nor give grace if your standards for yourself are too high. There's some point in our Christian life where we got to get over ourselves. And we have to realize that we are not all that. The only reason why we exist is because of Jesus' life, because of Jesus' grace, because the fact that he loves us. So we have to make ourselves a lot lower than the angels. We have to look at ourselves as people who are totally dependent on God and lift up the name of Jesus. See, church family, it's important to know that humility is the cup that holds God's grace. And the more humble we are, the more of God's grace we will receive, and then the more of God's grace we can share. Being humble allows us to see people differently. Being humble allows us to see people the way that God sees them. See, without humility, we cannot see humanity. So now this takes us back to our story. The agreement between Jacob and Laban was based off of anger, retaliation, fear, and mistrust. And this agreement had nothing to do with conciliation nor reconciliation. See, conciliation and reconciliation are godly principles. See, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says, Above all, loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. 
See, when we're about God's business, conciliation and reconciliation should be initiated on godly terms, not based off of worldly terms. Because worldly terms cause division, but godly terms unites God's people with each other and unites us with the world. Now, since Jacob was consumed with fear and self, he saw barriers between his family members and ethnicities as a reason for celebration. He agreed to a covenant to separate instead of inviting Laban into a covenant with God. He agreed not to fight, but he missed an opportunity to agree to unite with his uncle. Let's not make the same mistake that Jacob made. Let's not be content with, with leaving people where they are instead of settling on building unities and building bridges to Jesus Christ. See, we cannot be content with believers are over here and non-believers are over there. Because when we were in our sins, guess what? Jesus didn't leave us there. Jesus used the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin to teach us that God pursues us. See, Jesus wanted us to understand the heart of God and that he knows each and every one of us intimately. And since God pursues us, we as believers should pursue other people. When we see someone who's down in their sins, when we see someone who's not following God, it's not our opportunity to criticize, it's our opportunity to pursue them. Amen. See, I remember there was a young man who I knew, and for years this man was an alcoholic. However, there were a number of church members who knew him, and when they would see him, they would always run up to him and just love on him. They didn't criticize him, nor did they try to make him feel guilty, nor did they try to preach to him every chance they get. They would just love on this man. And every time they saw him, he was drunk. He was a bad alcoholic. However, they loved him every opportunity they had. One day, this man ended up coming to church. And when he came into church, he heard the word of God, the of the Holy Spirit covered this man. And ever since that day that was over 20 years ago, this man has not touched alcohol since. He's been faithful in church, faithful to the Word of God, and it all started because God's people pursued him. We have to be pursuers of people. It's time for us to stop looking at people who are different than us, people who are struggling, and saying, you stay over there while God's people Stay over here. When it comes to your family, your friends, your co-workers, let's not be like Jacob. Let's use those opportunities to unite people, to point them to Christ. But it requires some work on our part. We have to pursue them the same way that God pursued us. See, when we look at Scripture, we realize that God pursues us because he sees us as being important to him. We are created in his image. And like one pastor used to say, God doesn't only love us, but he likes us. And part of that pursuit involves sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. See, Jesus didn't accept any feeble attempts or building barriers of separation. But Jesus said this to the, God said this to the Israelite. I love this scripture. He says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. 
I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. And all day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own their own imagination. What God is saying here, when you weren't even looking for me, when you had nothing to do with me, when you were out there doing what was pleasing to your flesh, I pursued you because I love you. And what God has for you is so much better than what this world has for you. So God pursued each and every one of us. And now he's calling on us, God's people, those filled with the Holy Spirit, to pursue other people. Let's never get content in seeing anyone struggle in their sins. We're so busy criticizing homosexuals that we're missing an opportunity to show them the love of Christ. We're so busy criticizing people who are struggling with their identity or any other sin that we're missing an opportunity to fill God's place up with people who need Jesus. And it's all because we want to do God's will our own way. Let's be the hands and feet of Jesus. Let's take time out of our busy schedules to love on people who are struggling in their sins and never be content with division. There's a lot of Labans out there, and they're looking at us. We could play our Christian music. We can have our Bible on our desk. But do they trust us? Do they trust us with their secrets? Do they trust us that we will pray for them? Do they trust us that when they're hurting, when they're going through something, that they can say, pray for me? Let's not be like Jacob and miss those opportunities. But let's be like Jesus and be persistent in prayer, be persistent in patience, be prepared for problems, and serve in humility. So what can we take away from today's journey with Jacob? Two things. The first thing is this. Doing God's will, God's way, points people to Christ and cultivates unity. And the second thing is, doing God's will our way can potentially push people away and build barriers. Let's never miss an opportunity to share the love of Christ, to show the love of Christ, and pursue those who are lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we start off by saying thank you. Thank you that when we were in our sins, you pursued us. God, we thank you that part of your pursuit was sending your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take our place. God, that should have been us on the cross. But in your pursuit for us, you gave the ultimate sacrifice of your son to take away our sins. Lord, help us to never, ever forget that. 
So God, we pray that you will lead us and guide us to pursue other people. Help our testimony not to be like Jacob, where we celebrate in unity, when we celebrate in division, but help us, God, to promote unity. This cannot be done without your spirit. So we ask that each and every one of, each and every one of us will receive the power of the Holy Spirit, that we will understand our calling in life, and as we do it, we will do God's will, God's way. In Jesus' name, amen.